Hebrews 3. If you'd go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's usually habit for preachers when they come to Easter to pick a different text. So if you're visiting with us today, we're in the middle of a study of the book of Hebrews. And typically what would happen is I would go to one of the Gospels or maybe one of Paul's letters and pick a text that really works well with the resurrection, that explains it. And we'll look at one of those texts in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the more famous ones. But it's arguable that every text would work for Resurrection Sunday. Because every text, according to Jesus in John chapter 8, all the Bible testify to Him. Every word written testifies ultimately to Him. He says to the Pharisees, Pharisees, you search the Scriptures in vain. You think it's in them that you find life, but they're pointing you to Me. And when He was raised from the dead. On the road to Emmaus, he says to the disciples, have you not read the scriptures? And he says, explaining through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he explained to them why all of it was pointing to what had just happened. So it is justified to use really any text to talk about the resurrection, but I do think that this text in particular is very important for us this Easter morning, this Resurrection Sunday morning. Why stick with this text? The author of Hebrews is not trying to convince people that Jesus is alive. He's writing to Christians. People who in general believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Otherwise, why call yourself a Christian? Why endure persecution at all? Any kind of ostracization that was happening to them. Why do that at all unless you really believe Jesus is alive? He never explicitly references the resurrection of Jesus until the very end of the letter in the benediction. But it is implied in texts like this all over the book. In fact, it's my argument that the resurrection of Jesus is the teeth of this text. And as you probably know or have heard, if you're um, here for the first time, we're going to spend a long time in this text. I plan, plan to spend at least eight more weeks in this text because I think it's that important for the church. But today, how does this text relate to the resurrection? Two points where this text directly relates to the resurrection. In this phrase, the living God at the beginning and at the end we have come to share in Christ these two phrases function as bookends to his command that he gives and they intensify the command 
they increase the severity of his warning. But even in the first place, they give meaning to it at all. Without the resurrection of Jesus, these verses don't mean anything. Before we get to those two statements, the living God, and we have come to share in Christ and how that relates to the resurrection, let's ask a very important question. What is the whole sum of Christianity if Jesus is not raised from the dead? Without the resurrection of Jesus, if you were to put it all together and give a sum of it, what is it worth? If Jesus really never walked out of the tomb alive after having been dead, what really is the value of thousands of years of Christian heritage and tradition, millions of books written, hundreds of thousands of churches planted, tens of millions of converts, hundreds of millions of sermons and Bible studies, and billions of words spoken, and trillions of dollars spent in this entire endeavor. What is the worth of it? Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who was put to death under Pontius Pilate, the whole sum of it all is at best a really dumb hobby. There are a lot of really dumb hobbies out there. And I won't say a lot of them so as not to offend anybody. If there are any underwater basket weavers here, I apologize. There are a lot of really weird ways to waste your time. But the church and Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus is by far the worst. If Jesus is not alive today, after having been dead, then Christianity is the dumbest hobby and the biggest waste of time there ever was. That is, if you're living it right. If you're doing it right, then without the resurrection of Jesus, it's a big waste of time. And we'll go to one of the more familiar texts regarding the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then you, then, then our preaching, rather, is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. You can think of any people group in the history of the world, any persecuted, maligned minority, and Paul says, if it's not true that Jesus walked out of the tomb, then we, those who stake our lives on this, we're the most to be pitied. Is that true of you? 
Paul just said in the preceding verses that he worked harder than any of the other apostles by the strength that God supplied. So it makes sense for Paul to say, if Christ has not been raised, then I am most to be pitied. Think of all he lost. Think of the disciples when Peter looks at Jesus after he said, it's really difficult, it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Peter says, well, we've left everything for you. What will be our inheritance? They'd left everything. They had lost everything. They had undergone much scorn. So it makes sense for them to say, we're really pitiable if this isn't true. What about your life? If it turns out not to be true, is it really pitiful for you? Is it really a pitiable life that you lead if Christ turns out to be a farce? It's a very severe and important critique of how we live our lives. Anyone who would come after me must first take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Don't be like the Gentiles seeking the things they seek. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that he already knows that you need will be added to you. And we're not saying that you should go out and burn all your stuff and live an an ascetic lifestyle. But if Christ is your hope and you do believe that he has been raised from the dead, that changes things about your plans, your goals, your dreams. If he's really king, if he's really alive. So now we look at this phrase from Hebrews chapter 3. The living God. The text we looked at last week and what will drive the sermons for the next several weeks is meaningless without this truth. Why should you watch it? And this is the text. Let me, let me just explain. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing on this phrase, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why should we do that? Why should we watch out for and take care of our spiritual health and others? Because Jesus is the living God. And that's what he said is true. And he told us that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Why should we not want to fall away into sin and sloth? Because Jesus is the living God and the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. Why should we strive to stand with Christ and share in him? Because in fact, Christ has been raised. This is what Paul says after he goes through what we just read. Because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Why should we exhort one another every day as long as it is called today? Because Jesus is alive. And therefore, his words are true. And therefore, he will come back one day. And it will no longer be called today. 
when he returns, he will judge all flesh. In Jesus' own words, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. Easter, or better, Resurrection Sunday, is a very joyous, hope-filled celebration, to be sure. However, to take Jesus at His word, it also makes Resurrection Sunday a final and blazingly white-hot indictment against sin. The judge has risen. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Your sins and my sins, the dark corners of your heart and mine have been put on notice by Jesus' victory and exit from the tomb. They may live no more. Their time is going to be cut short. They, your sins, my sins, have no place in the world to come. So that's what we should understand, the meaning we should have in our minds when he says the living God. And then he says this at the close of the paragraph, for we have come to share in Christ. This text shows for certain when the author says the living God, he's not just meaning God in general or God in some metaphysical way, the great spirit, the force. Coming to share in Christ is his answer to the question, what does it mean to not fall away from the living God? When the author says, come to share in Christ, he uses this phrase, in Christ, it's in the New Testament a lot, and he probably means something a little bit different than what Paul means. The language used here is that of a partnership, or even a business relationship. You're not just a member of a fan club or some fictional character group. Like, I'm a big fan of a lot of fictional stories. And I would get part of Facebook groups and I talk about them and geek out. That's not what Christianity is. You have come to share in Christ. You're a partner, a co-investor, an executive producer along with Christ for this program, this freight train of meaning that is headed towards the redemption of all things, the creation, recreation of the world. This is like the parable of the buried treasure or the costly pearl. That's what this partnership looks like. When they realize the value of what they had found, They went and sold everything they had so that they could get it. You have come to share in Christ. You're His partners. Exactly what does this partnership look like? It refers back to what we were discussing. The kind of life 
that is a partner with Christ in this mission of salvation is one that is pitiable if it turns out not to be true. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord... Jesus, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You have come to share in Christ's mission. You have come to share in Christ's person. You are co-heirs with Christ. You haven't become partners in this sense with Baptists. You haven't become partners if you're a member of this church in North Star. It isn't our story. It's not your family. It's not your mission or your personal ministry goals or your skins on the wall. You've come to share in Christ, the living God. That's what this is about. It's not about your kingdom or the things you want to see happen. You have come to share in the very Son of God, the Creator of the world. This is why we exhort one another. Any kind of athlete spends a lot of time trying to get ready for a season. Especially if they're professionals. they got millions of dollars on the line, put in a lot of work because of the prize or the goal of gaining the trophy, getting a bigger contract, whatever it is. Fame. So they want to share in a championship season. They want to be a part of, a partner with a club's progress towards fame and glory. And what you have come to share in, you have been conscripted on the roster of God's team in a sense. You're partners with His mission to bring about the recreation of all things. The new heavens and the new earth. Resurrection Sunday, while it is a celebration of something that you had no part in whatsoever, you are not there pleading with God, praying to Him to bring Jesus out of the grave. The only part you had to play in that is that it was your sin that required Him to go to the cross in the first place. It's totally done by God and the power of God alone, once for all time, but it's also a summons. As he walks out of that grave, he looks throughout human history, backwards and forwards, all the way back to the curse in the garden, towards the end of all things. And he looks at us squarely in the face and he says, are you with me? Come with me. Stand with me. Follow me. The author closes it out this way, and this is how I hope to close, just to give you some confidence. Because I'm, you know, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat anything. It's difficult to maintain trust and hope and faith. He says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We talked about this passage last week, and we'll be revisiting it in coming weeks. 
And it's very important to our topic today, Jesus' resurrection, because this is what our confidence should be grounded on. What is your original confidence? Is that Jesus is alive. It's not necessarily God has a great plan for me, and he loves me, and he wants to do all this cool stuff for me, or I get to know God and you know do stuff for him on the world. It's that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's it. That is your original confidence. Because if that isn't there, then none of the rest of it matters. And a few important clarifications. The Bible never demands you accept anything on irrational, what some people call blind faith. We are commanded to believe based on God's trustworthiness. Trusting in Christ or having faith in Him, like we've talked about before, is not a matter of crossing your fingers, hoping it turns out to be true. Or as your backup plan, as your insurance policy, on a spiritual level. It's a matter of confidence. The imagery would be clinging to a rock or hiding in a fortress in the midst of a storm or a battle. In the remaining time we have, I want to show you how you can have rock-solid confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. The first, and this is a little bit technical, but I think it's honestly the most powerful. And I pray that the Spirit would use this. But this is 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. through Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. So basically, I'm not trying to convince you or swindle you into believing the truth about Jesus. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a self-authenticating glory and beauty to the gospel of Jesus. That is why the preached Gospel, when the word of God goes out, it is self-authenticatingly beautiful and glorious and weighty. It forces people to make a decision. You either have to accept that self-authenticating glory, that tidal wave of majesty that is there to see. Because if the enemy is working to blind the eyes of the unbelievers to prevent them from seeing it, then there's something really there to be seen. His glory is there on the pages. It is a spiritual reality and a fight whenever you open your heart to read the Scriptures. It's like if you ask me, is, is that light on? Yes, it's on. How do you know it's on? Hold a gun to my head and tell me to believe something else? I can't. It's on. The glory of Christ seen in these very pages is like that. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is He real? Yes. How do you know? He is. 
It's self-authenticatingly glorious. So that's the first one. The second one is the apostles, Jesus' family, and the outlandish nature of the claims of the gospel. It sets our religion apart from every other religion. All the other religions of the world who had some spiritual leader, they testified to God. Muhammad never said he was God. He pointed people to Allah. Joseph Smith doesn't say he was God or the Messiah. I'm a prophet. I tell you who God is. Jesus came and he said, I am. And exposed himself to the ridicule and eventual murder of his creatures. And if you say that, if you say, I am God, if you claim, I am the I am, before Abraham was, I am, and you die, that invalidates your claim, unless you come back to life. So, think of the apostles. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed he was going to usher in his kingdom and it was all going to be great. Jesus' family actually didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. There's one time in the Gospels where they come and they, they try to like get him out of the crowd. they saying he's lost his mind. We're sorry. Yeah, he's our brother. We're not, you know, some, some weird things happened back on Christmas, but, you know, we'll, we'll get him out of here. Sorry for his babbling. Then something happened to where those people who saw the one they set their hope in, the apostles, die, spiraling into Denial, betrayal, and fear. And for the family of Jesus who thought he was crazy, something happens to where they say he's the Son of God. Yeah, he died. That was publicly portrayed before everyone, but he came back. And James is one of my favorite examples. Every account of the death of James, this is Jesus' younger brother, they command him to denounce Jesus as the Christ. His brother, he grew up with him. He thought he was crazy. Something happened so powerful that they were able to threaten him death, push him off the edge of the temple in some accounts of his death, in his own blood and broken bones at the bottom of the temple, saying, denounce the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. He said, no, he is. I can't deny it. Is the light on? Yes. How do you know it is? How do you know, James, that your brother who you thought was crazy is the Son of God? He came back to life. That's the only thing that explains the radical change of the apostles. So that's the second way. And the third way, and I'll try to be very brief here, I apologize, is the historical account. Not just the Bible saying things about it, but the actual historical account. No one, for the most part, disputes that the tomb was empty. And almost no one disputes that people saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. The best explanation is to either say that he did not die after all that happened to him, but was put in the ground, not dead, and somehow pushed away the stone by himself, overpowering the guards by himself, and his disciples nursed him back to health. 
or to say that they all hallucinated in the same way and saw Jesus alive and they were convinced that way. That's the best explanation the world has for the historical record of what we know, what is beyond dispute. But as we already saw, these are the people who died, for the most part, martyrs' deaths. You don't do that for something you know is a hoax. And I've brought with me eight copies of Lee Strobel's The Case for Easter. If you want an account of the journalistic, scientific explanation of how this actually had to happen, it's up here for you. Just come take a copy. I want you to have rock solid confidence that Jesus, after having been dead, walked alive out of the tomb. So a few questions, and we'll be done. Is the resurrection of Christ your only hope? Is it your only ground of confidence, or do you just cross your fingers, hoping it turns out to be true? Do you live your life in such a way that if the resurrection were not true, you would be one of the most to be pitied, or pitied at all? That's a call to radical obedience, church. Have you done the necessary work to build a sure confidence in the fact that he actually rose from the grave? Since, all that aside, since he has been risen from the grave, since he has come back to life from death, what are you doing about it? Have you joined Him? Are you partners with Him? Have you echoed His message and command in putting your sin on notice? You have no place in my life anymore. My life is now hidden with Christ in God. Have you gone out and told everyone who will listen to you that Jesus is alive and is one day returning? Easter. A Resurrection Sunday is more than just a happy reflection on the fact that Jesus did not stay dead. It's a summons, as I've said. It's a call to action. As the song says, Christ has risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake. Come and rise up from the grave. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He is risen. Amen. Father, thank you for this day and everything you've done for us. Change our hearts to see the glory of your resurrection. I pray that this day would for many be the day of salvation. Whether they thought they've been in Christ before, whatever the case has been in the past, I pray that for many today would be the first day in their lives that they put their trust and hold fast their confidence on the fact that you walked out of the grave victorious. And that we who do know you would see this as a call to action and make our lives about your kingdom and nothing else. 
And if there's anyone who needs to seek out counsel or talk or pray, I pray that this moment as we sing these songs would be that time for them. They would come find me or someone else to pray with them or to lead them to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.